News, notes, and Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. It's May Day, Friday, May the 1st, and show number 22 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Friday show for you. We'll talk with Todd Zola, our regular weekly Talk with Todd commentator, about Ron Chandler leaving BaseballHQ.com, about how to fix ERA and WHIP, the correct use of batter versus pitcher data, and more. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at John Lester, Curtis Granderson, and others. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson, looking at Josh Hamilton and the Houston shortstop situation, and more. In our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at Toronto right-hander Aaron Sanchez at Cleveland right-hander Corey Kluber, Arizona right-hander Chase Anderson visiting Dodgers left-hander Brett Anderson and a couple of other matchups. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com co-GM and speculator columnist Ray Murphy talks about a May Day health check on his NFBC team. It's another big Friday show. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's the first day of May. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our Friday News and Notes edition, as always, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson is on deck with players from the American League, and leading off, it's the National League report, and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Always good to be here. Always good to have you. Uh, I know you're a big fan of Stephen Nickrand at BaseballHQ.com. We rely on Stephen's coverage of a lot of uh, player performance uh here on Baseball HQ Radio, and he's got a couple of columns this week, batters and pitchers, as always, uh, looking at early season surprises, and he has some buy-low candidates, starting with Curtis Granderson, the Mets outfielder off to a pretty slow start. He's hit one home run, he has six RBIs, and around 80 at-bats, uh, batting two thirty one. So uh, why is Steven Nickrant so optimistic about Curtis Granderson? Well, the thing, you know, the thing about Curtis Granderson's start that, that you're concerned about is the power has simply not been there. I mean, as you said, one home run, and when Stephen wrote the column early in the week, no home runs. So, uh, so he was getting dropped in a bunch of leagues because of the lack of power. Uh, at that point, had a 0% home run per fly rate, which, of course, is, is really fluky. And Stephen pointed out that his batted ball distance has actually increased by 10 feet from a year ago. So he's hitting the ball further. Uh, plate control has been very good, an 18% walk rate, which is is uh, huge for, for him. Uh, and a, uh, a 79% contact rate, which is good, and 125 expected power index. So all the other metrics say that Granderson's power will return. And in fact, it did this week. He had a home run this week. So things should look up for Curtis Granderson. Of course, with Curtis Granderson, you don't, he's not a guy you think about in terms of a high batting average. We're projecting 236 the rest of the way, but just should be good for some home runs and some steals. And, and, uh, if you need those things and can tolerate the low BA, he's certainly a buy low target. Something that caught my eye when I was looking at Curtis Granderson's stat line is uh, his fly ball percentage early in the season is well down. It's usually up around 50%. Now it's down around 35 
But what's really interesting at the same time is that his line drive rate through those first 80 or so at-bats has been very high at 31%, and yet his hit rate or batting average on balls in play is down around 28%, which seems... uh, uh, wrong somehow. <laughs> yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah, you, you'd expect with a line drive rate like that to be getting more of a, a higher batting average on balls in play. But, you know, all these things, as we say, are, are, are subject to regression. He's been hitting a lot of line drives, and probably some of those will turn into fly balls as the season progresses. Uh, and so uh, we're expecting probably a 22% line drive rate. Uh, and uh, so so some of that will get, will get corrected, I think. Uh, but you're right, that's a very strange kind of thing to notice this early in the season. Maybe it's a small sample size. And it's just generally a good sign that when a guy's hitting a lot of line drives that, that whatever his other problems might be, he's seeing the ball well enough to hit it squarely. The uh, low home run per fly ball rate, if that corrects at the same time as he starts hitting more fly balls, uh, we're projecting 15 home runs the rest of the way. That seems like a reasonable expectation. Only 48 RBIs, but you did mention the stolen bases, Nick. We're projecting nine stolen bases, which gives Granderson a kind of aggregated value of 10 or 11 bucks, which if you can get it for the cost of $2 in your free agent pool or in a cheap trade might not be a bad move. Uh, Stephen Nickrand also likes the Cubs left-handed ace John Lester, who's uh, got a pretty poor start himself, only one quality start in four outings, an 0-2 record, 6.23 ERA, a whip around 160. That's all what's going wrong with John Lester. What does Stephen say is going right? Well, you know, John Lester's off to a horrible start, and considering that a lot of people paid a lot of money for John Lester uh, or, or in drafts, thinking that he was going to be the... Uh, the, the the second ace behind uh, behind Max Scherzer coming you know coming over from the American League, but what's John Lester's simply had a really whole lot of bad luck. His expected earned run average right now is two point nine six, but forty three percent hit rate, fifty eight percent strand rate. Uh, so simply has not not stranded many runners. They they come around to score. Uh, balls are falling for hits that shouldn't be, but the skills have been outstanding. Uh, striking out 10 batters per nine innings, walking only 2.1, uh, BPV of 143. So all the signs are there for John Lester turning things around. So now is certainly a great time to try to buy low on Lester and see if, uh, if the owner who, who got him uh, is ready to dump him. That does happen, and it's a, an interesting thing to look at with John Lester. I, I've also, also thought is, this guy's money in the bank, and, and it, we are sometimes a little too willing to throw a guy under the bus based on a handful of starts. It's just not good practice in real baseball or in fantasy baseball. Right, very definitely. That's why the teams keep running them out there, because they know these guys have good have good skills and uh, and are very reliable, and that their 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 bad luck will turn around. And so it's the same sort of thing you've got to kind of hang on with in fantasy baseball. If you if you're a Lester owner and have a way to bench him, maybe you'd want to do that right now until you see a good start or two. But he's not the kind of guy you simply want to dump. No, that's for sure. And and if somebody in your league is willing to dump him, then uh, certainly he's also the kind of guy that you need to say, uh, "I'll uh, sign me up. I'll, I'll take him." What's weird about it, Nick, is if you look at John Lester splits with runners aboard versus no runners aboard because you'd think with these horrible strand rate numbers that maybe there's a pitching from the stretch issue. His OPS with nobody on is almost 900, and as soon as men get on, his OPS drops to 720. That's OPS against, of course. And that, that seems to me to be a, another pretty good sign that things are going to square around. Yeah, it would seem to be. I mean, certainly if, uh, if the problem has been not stranding runners but the OPS is lower with runners on base – then uh, certainly that's not doesn't indicate a problem with Lester as much as it does simply bad luck. 
Leicester's HQ projection is 13 wins the rest of the way, 316 ERA, 122 whip, about a $22 uh, pitcher, pretty much in line with what he is most years. 194 strikeouts could come in handy for any league that plays 5 by 5 or strikeout-based. Uh, Nick, I've been seeing a lot of internet buzz about the Diamondbacks right-hander Ruby De La Rosa. He might not be the, the buy-low we'd like because he already has those two early wins, but a lot of owners are going to be scared off by an ERA that's closer to five than four. But he does have 25 strikeouts in just 25 innings. That looks like a positive sign. What other reasons does uh, Steve Nickrand have for buying low on Ruby De La Rosa? Well, Ruby De La Rosa, it's a little bit of a different story than Lester because we don't have a track record on Ruby De La Rosa yet. But it's a guy that we've been looking at for several years here at Baseball HQ as, as having excellent skills. And right now, skills are, are really very, very good. A dom of nine strikeouts per nine innings and only 1.8 walks, 3.35 expected run run average, 136 BPV. Uh, a lot of very good things going on here. Uh, and, and a young pitcher who's going to take some lumps early on in the season, especially pitching, pitching in Arizona. Uh, there could be some problems because of that ballpark. But here's a guy that's likely to get better and better as the season moves on. Uh, and so certainly I think a, uh, an excellent buy low target at this point in the season. I think a lot of it's going to depend on where you are in your league and how needful you are of having to catch lightning in a bottle because as positive as some of these signs are the fact is he's really not getting the job done in a lot of ways and as you said he has such a limited track record that we can't even hang our hat on saying well he'll bounce back to what we know he is because we don't know what he is that's right i mean a year ago 102 innings pitch 4.43 era 1.49 whip certainly like the the kind of thing that's not going to win your league for you so uh, this is one to, to have a little more caution on, but realize the skills are very good, and and there's a breakout probably coming. Uh, maybe more of a more of a value in a keeper league than he is in a, in a one year league, uh, but certainly someone to keep your eye on. And uh, he had an excellent start this week: seven innings pitched, one point two nine ERA, eight strikeouts, no walks. So those starts are there, but he's going to take his lumps and some some uh, tough starts along the way as well. Our projection for Ruby De La Rosa, just six wins. It's not a good team. Something else we should point out to anybody who's thinking about him. That's a, that's a pretty tough place to get wins, and it's a tough ballpark for pitchers. 411 ERA, 140 whip. Maybe a possibility, as you said, for a keeper or dynasty format or a very deep league where those kind of uh, numbers aren't going to kill you. But I think to add him in a mix, Nick, you'd have to be way more optimistic. Uh, and finally, Adam Ottavino got the closer role in Colorado, as we predicted here at Baseball HQ Radio and at the website. But uh, Ottavino lasted about as long as a snowball in Miami before he got hurt. And look who steps up to take his spot. Uh, we, people thought maybe Raphael Betancourt, but instead the new Colorado closer, none other than John Axford. Yeah, you know, at this oh, point, and the thing to think about at this point certainly is that that uh, we don't we don't expect that this will be a long term issue with Ottavino. He's he's not had a big injury history. Uh, this doesn't seem to be a real uh, a real problem. Some inflammation in his elbow, which is going to keep him out for. Uh, a little longer than two weeks. So, so there'll be a, a change, uh, some save opportunities for Axford. And so far, Axford is showing uh, showing some real vintage skills. He's not allowed an earned run yet. Uh, six strikeouts in five innings pitched, three saves, uh, BPV of 150. So in a limited sample, Axford is doing very, very well. The thing to remember about Axford is that um, there's a lot of things that could, that could blow up uh, on him very soon based on his history. I mean, he's... he's uh, 
been prone to giving up home runs by the bucket full, as they said in uh, in the forecaster. And in Colorado, of course, that could happen much faster. So uh, a real chance that Axe could, could blow up on you any time. But if you need a couple of saves in the next couple of weeks, maybe a guy who can uh, uh, can can chip in for those. And, and all of those home runs are really a mystery to me, Nick, considering that in the last four years, uh, 11 through 14, he has this home run penchant, uh, 1.3 per nine, 1.4 per nine, uh, 1.0 last year. And yet his ground ball percentages are 50, 46, 45, 54. It's like every fly ball that gets hit is flying out of the yard. And, and if whatever that anomaly is gets corrected, maybe he's not going to give up those home runs and maybe he uh, has a chance of keeping this role in the long term. Yeah, maybe term. so. That's a possibility. Although I, I really think Ottavino has been so good that uh, probably he's not, uh, Axford will, will not hang on to the role. Although, uh, you know, folks, folks surprise us in that way. But um, I would think it, look at Axford as more of a short term rather than a long term situation. And Betancourt actually has a save as well. Uh, since Ottavino has been out. So there may be a sort of committee thing going to go on in Colorado, uh, depending upon matchups and uh, and who's throwing well and who pitched last night and that sort of thing. And, of course, if we had a nickel for every pitcher who had minor elbow irritation that turned out to be much, much worse, well, we'd all be uh, rolling in clover. Uh, Doug Dennis, we should point out, covered all these shenanigans in his bullpen buyer's guide column. Nick, thanks very much for talking with us. Thank you, Patrick. And we'll catch up with you again next week. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchups for BaseballHQ.com. And he's our man on the National League beat here on the Baseball HQ Radio podcast. Now let's move over to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, welcome back. Hey, PD. How you doing? Doing great. First of May, it's a very beautiful weather here in the home office in Waterloo, Ontario. Bright sunshine, nice and warm, and a little breeze. It's really great it's baseball weather for sure. Uh, let's begin someplace where they often play indoors in Houston, where an awkward slide put Jed Lowry on the DL. And there's a new story, by the way, isn't it? Jed Lowry on the DL. And he'll be there until the All-Star break at least. He tore a ligament in his thumb, I guess. Uh, Houston was off to a terrific start, first place in the American League West. But Jed Lowry was a pretty influential piece of that. Uh, now what happens? He's really no stranger to the DL, is he? No. Uh, Houston's offense was surging for the for the week just before Lowry's injury, just before he went down. And he was leading that surge. He was hitting uh, uh, over 300. He had a, a .999 OPS with four home runs to date. He's going to be tough to replace immediately, particularly in a swing and miss lineup that needs more guys who can make the kind of contact that he can. Yeah, it's a swing and miss lineup, all right. You think of uh, Houston, Chris Carter, and George Springer, and a lot of guys in that 65% contact rate range. Uh, I noticed that many fantasy owners, especially in American League-only deep leagues, still have a spot for Jonathan Villar, who was promoted to take Lowry's roster spot. So how might this move benefit his owners? Well, Villar is, was an interesting guy a few years ago. If you remembered, uh, he came up uh, mid-213, stole a lot of bases, uh, excited people with his athleticism, and he was the starting shortstop last year in 2014 until the middle of the year. But he's really inconsistent on, on defense. He'll make a great play one moment and throw the ball away the next at shortstop. Um, his plate skills aren't very good. Um, a lot of owners are still hoping that he can develop. Uh, um I'm not so sure early on that that Houston is going to give him uh, a lot of time that his owners uh, hope. Um, The real question is, is he going to be more effective in a part-time role off the bench? He's taken Lowry's uh, roster spot after the injury. Um, 
can he get some traction on defense and can he do a little bit better at the plate along with the great running skills? I mean, time's going to tell. And when you said his uh, contact is a little bit challenged, he got it all the way up to uh, 80% so far this year. But in the past years, not so good, Jock. 70%, 66%. He'll fit in on the team. But uh, gosh, uh, I don't know if he's going to give them what Lowry was giving cl- or close enough to it that they might not want to make some other decisions. So who's going to get the shortstop time? Well, as I suspected when the injury went down, the, the Astros are initially turning to Marwan Gonzalez, who's a utility early on, simply because he's more reliable, and, and, and you have it correct. Uh, he's more focused than Villar has ever been. Um, but at best, Marwan Gonzalez is a marginal pickup in deep leagues. Aside from his 80% contact late rate, he has no secondary skills, uh, nothing that's even par, let alone attractive. His value is going to depend on playing time, uh, batting average on balls in play, and his versatility. Um, Villar's definitely going to steal some at-bats. And and again, the question is, what can he do with them? (laughs) When you say that uh, Gonzalez has a bit more contact ability than Jonathan Villar, uh, it's 80% the last couple of years, and that's actually an improvement, which is sad to say about what the way that Houston goes about their business. They also have Uber prospect Carlos Correa, and he's just putting up huge numbers in his first year at Double A. This is going to be where things get really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. This is what I find fascinating about this whole situation. Uh, As most people know, Correa had a broken leg in 2014 that slowed his ascent, and he still has less than 100 at-bats at the AA level uh, entering this weekend. But he's just crushing it right now. He's hitting 385. He has five home runs, and he has the talent to force Houston's hand if he keeps hitting and if Houston remains in contention through June. This is a fascinating uh, uh, situation simply because – in a perfect world, Houston would love to see him spend half the year at AA and the other half at AAA and get him ready for 2016. But if Houston's contending in a in a mediocre AL West where less than 90 wins may win the division, they kind of may have to consider moving him faster than we uh, anticipated. I think that's a key thing. There's nobody in the uh, American League West has stepped out. We all expected Seattle was going to be terrific, and they've had rotation problems. Uh, the Angels have had trouble on the offense. Oakland's had injuries and also has kind of jimmy jammied around in there. And all of a sudden, Houston finds himself after a month uh, in first place. Now, of course, there's plenty of baseball to be played, and there's lots of instances in history where a team had a good first month only to crater down the road. But it is going to be very interesting if they stay in first place or at least contending for it a game or two out through the next couple of months because Lowry's supposed to be back sometime in early August, I guess, is the guess. Won't this add to the whole intrigue of the situation and create some kind of log jams? Yeah, absolutely, especially at third base and perhaps even at first base where uh, um, most a lot of um, uh, Houston swing and misses at first base and DH, uh, uh, depending on things go. But obviously, we're a long ways from away from this, and, and often performances and injuries in the interim will be factors. But uh, like we've been talking about, this is, a, this is a fun situation to watch, both from a fantasy and from a pure baseball standpoint. It's a shame, though. uh, Lowry was having such a terrific year, and I know a lot of owners had him and were real excited. All of a sudden, boom, down he goes. Uh, Staying in the American League West, the other really big story of the week uh, is down in your neck of the woods, Josh Hamilton officially going back to Texas, and your Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim are going to be paying a good chunk of the salary that they owe him from that catastrophic contract he signed a couple of years ago. 
when he left Texas a few years ago, that was also under something of a cloud. He didn't uh, endear himself to the fans or to the organization, yet here he is back in Texas. What do you think the Rangers are trying to do here? And, and after that, who's going to lose playing time for the Rangers? Well, they're seeing an awfully cheap solution to their left field issues and something that will hopefully spike an offense that's scuffling uh, almost as badly as the Angels are. If you look, and particularly in the outfield, if you take a look at uh, Shin Su Chu over in right field, he's been just terrible. And, and look, there's a lot of parity in the AL West these days, as we've mentioned, and there's a decent chance that unless Seattle's young pitching takes a step up, someone could win this division with less than 90 games. Now, it's, it's doubtful that it's going to be Texas, but they want to stay relevant and they want to draw fans as they rebuild. So can Josh Hamilton succeed in Texas? And assuming he plays even reasonably well, who are going to be the playing time losers? Well, obviously no one can predict Josh Hamilton right now. He would certainly have some motivation. Uh, but, but the Angels and, 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 of course, the Rangers before them were, um, were, were frustrated at his effort and his lack of preparation during long stretches. And, of course, uh, he's always been an injury risk. And and even more, obviously, you have his addiction issues, and it, which at least a few people out this way in SoCal believed he's used as a pass for a while now. But when he was in Texas, Jock, he also had the benefit of having a minder. Remember the former manager, Johnny Oates, kind of took Hamilton under his wing and acted as a mentor and kind of that guy who stood between him and the personal problems, the addictions, and so forth. And that was a different situation. Yeah, uh, you know, there's a chance he could put up decent numbers in Texas if he can stay healthy and on the straight and narrow. Obviously, it's a much better offensive venue than, than Angel Stadium, and he still has power. But essentially, he takes uh, playing time away from uh, right-handed hitting Ryan Rua, who is already on the DL and who now may return to a platoon role if, uh, if Hamilton's doing well. Now, let's suppose that he stays on the field. Well, we haven't projected for about seven, eight dollars, uh, uh, not quite a ten dollar player. Um, I, it was interesting. I had to look back at Hamilton's numbers today, today because I'd seen him just look awful against left-handed pitching out here. But his numbers weren't that bad. Uh, the problem is, is what he does in stretches and and how Texas reacts to it. Um, Josh Hamilton could could be a real surprise this year. He, he his he still has double digit earnings possibilities. He's not the Josh Hamilton of old, and he probably won't be given all the issues going on. But he could he could be productive uh, in an era where offense is is fading, and particularly for fantasy owners who need outfield help. Meanwhile, of course, back in uh, Los Angeles, the Angels have to figure out what to do without Josh Hamilton. What do you think they're going to try to do to fill the void? Yeah, I don't know. You know, this is this is a real problem for the Angels because they have such a weak system. Matt Joyce has been awful in left field, and his uh, right-handed platoon mate, Colin, Colin Cowgill, hasn't been any better. Uh, they're going to give Grant Green a few uh, left field reps if this uh, this slump continues. Uh, interesting, we saw a, a, a glimpse of a future lineup this past Thursday with Albert Pujols uh, out of the game with a mild hamstring, I'm sorry, a mild hamstring cramp or strain, depending on who you're listening to. Eric Ibar led off for the Angels with Johnny Giovatella moving all the way up from his number eight spot to number two, Trout in the number three spot, and Cole Calhoun hit fourth and in fact drove in three runs during the win against Oakland. But frankly, even with Trout, uh, uh, until Matt Joyce and Chris Iannetta do something and C.J. Crone gets more consistent at best, this just doesn't look like a very good offense. Maybe a good idea to look elsewhere. In Minnesota, Mike Shears at BaseballHQ.com in his Playing Time Tomorrow article wrote about Tommy Malone. Got shelled three straight starts. He's moving to the bullpen to make room for Ricky Nolasco. 
<laughs> so Tommy Malone, Ricky Nolasco, uh, is there any real fantasy opportunity here, Jock? Yeah, really. You know, Nolasco has had his moments, uh, but mostly in his past. He's 32 now. He's always had great control. He still does, but his dominance is declining. Um, he's, a, he's a home run risk. Uh, he's always an injury risk. Um, it's possible... Um, particularly in a in a uh, a home run uh, friendly park, at least for pitching anyway, like like Minnesota. Um, but we're not projecting great things for uh, for Nolasco right now. Anybody coming from the minors or somewhere in the organization? Maybe they could get a third baseman to go turn pitch. I don't know. Yeah, really. Well, you know, we discussed Alex Myers a few weeks ago, and he's still up to his old tricks. He looks great one game in the minors, and then the next game he'll he'll go maybe four innings and give up five runs like he did the other night. Um, one interesting name that is currently pitching for them, Trevor May, who has had problems with both uh, controls and the home run ball. He has a 17 to 3 strikeout to walk ratio in his first 20 innings. Now his earned run average isn't that great; it's at 4.4, but it's half a run higher than his expected ERA. So he's somebody to watch, and if you can really take afford to take a flyer or or have a reserve spot, you can put him on. He might be a guy who looks like he's breaking through. We talked earlier about. Uh, Injuries that come as no surprise. Jed Lowry, how about the Yankees losing Masahiro Tanaka? Uh, it's at least a month, and they're saying it's a right wrist tendonitis or, quotes a slight strain of the right forearm. This all sounds elbow-related to me. Is he done? Yeah, that's the real question. He, it, these sound like compensating injuries, and a lot of people are just saying he's really got to go have the uh, the Tommy John surgery. Um, I, we haven't projected still for uh, for nine percent innings pitched, uh, which which is a lot uh, based on our standards. I'm not sure I'm buying that. Um, it's I think there's a fifty percent chance that they just decide to to go ahead with the surgery, but but time will tell. Obviously, who gets uh, who gets the innings? Well, you got Chase Whitley and Adam Warren who are going to get extended looks now. Um, these guys are number four, number five starter types. They're they're obviously lottery picks who've who've pitched decently in in the past. So if you know, again, if you're looking for somebody, if you're really uh, desperate for pitching, uh, they're they're interesting names, but they're not sure things. Um, what the Yankees do, uh, they're, they're going to be given shots for the next month. Uh, in the meantime, the Yankees will hope that uh, Ivan Nova will come back from uh, from Tommy John surgery sometime in June or July. Um, who knows? Maybe Luis Severino, their 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 highly touted uh, rookie prospect, who's tearing it up down in Double A. Maybe maybe he gets real precocious and they promote him. Um, but again, the the AL East is is a lot like the uh, AL West, and that's uh, there's a lot of parity there. That's possibility that uh, that nobody has to win a lot of games to get to the postseason. So the Yankees could even go out and spend money if they find themselves in contention uh, in uh, mid July. And finally, Jock, uh, the Toronto Blue Jays had uh, a couple of stories. In the baseball news uh, recently, starting with another player who's unfortunately had a long injury history, Jose Reyes goes to the DL with a cracked rib. Uh, I watched the Blue Jays quite a bit, and he was dealing with it for a couple of weeks before he finally made the move to the DL. Uh, they say it's probably not going to be a minimum stay, so there's going to be somebody playing shortstop in Toronto. Anybody worth having? Well, not really. It looks like Ryan Goins right now, and uh, if you look at his history, uh, he doesn't have any secondary skills, no speed, no power. Uh, his contact rate is subpar. Uh, when you lose a player like Reyes and you don't have anybody there, it, it really is going to hurt your lineup, and I, and I think Toronto's hurting right now. I wouldn't be looking at, uh, at shortstop if I were a fantasy owner in the Toronto organization.
And uh, sad to report, in my American League only, I have Jose Reyes. It's a it's a severe blow, that's for sure. But that's the price you uh, pay in the risk department when you roster a player like that. I have to live with it. Uh, another piece of news out of Toronto uh, to wrap up here, uh, Jock, is that uh, bullpen got shaken up. Miguel Castro earlier in the year took over for Brett Cecil. Castro really started scuffling, and now Brett Cecil has replaced Miguel Castro. Yeah, this was always an influx situation simply because of uh, Brett Cecil's health. Uh, he had rotator cuff tendonitis. He looks like he's pitching a little bit better. He's certainly healthier. Um, and he's got more experience than Miguel Castro, who obviously shot up the ladder uh, uh, after uh, some experience in A-ball. Um, and Castro started very well. He's very impressive. But now he's scuffling. He's given up a bunch of runs and a bunch of hits in his last few appearances. This move was not a surprise. Um, if Cecil is healthy, I wouldn't be surprised if he actually runs with the closer job. But the situation is still in flux. You never know. All right, Jock, thanks very much. We'll talk to you again in a week's time. Okay, PD, thanks. Jock Thompson is the Director of News and Analysis at BaseballHQ.com and, of course, our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Coming up next, it's our regular weekly Talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. 1-1, pitch. He popped him up. He's going to get it. Rochus down from third. Rochus makes the catch. Ball game over. A perfect game. A perfect game for David Cohn. The third time works like a charm. It is the third perfect game in Yankee Stadium history. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. BaseballHQ.com is working all the time to give you everything you need to succeed. Like Ron Chandler's Fanalytics column, it's called The End, and we'll be talking about it with Todd Zola in just a moment. As you heard, Stephen Nickrand has early season surprises for both hitters and pitchers in his Buyer's Guide columns, and Playing Time Today looks at roster moves affecting Ernesto Frieri, Desmond Jennings, and many others. Plus, we have all the rest of the great stuff refreshed every day to give you fantasy baseball intelligence for winners at Baseball. BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, a contributor to BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and others. Todd, welcome back to the show. Really great to be back, Patrick. Been an interesting week, and before we start talking about the world of players and uh, batters and pitchers and uh, fixing things, uh, we had some sad news uh, that just came out uh, late. In the week, uh, Ron Chandler has announced that he's leaving Baseball HQ after 18 years. He founded the the uh, company 18 years ago. Now he's done, and uh, I know you know Ron well, and I imagine you have some thoughts on the uh, big change in the fantasy baseball industry. Well, it, it's sad news from the you know from the eyes of a Baseball HQ you know longtime user, but I I I trust, and I'm sure you do too, that the company's in great hands, and I wouldn't worry a thing about it. And I think it's actually some pretty you know good news for the industry because this is now going to free up Ron to do some other things that you know if we knowing Ron and you know him as well you know let's get inside that head there's there's going to be some good things that I think come out of that head going forward uh and this might give him the opportunity to you know to to 
you know, look at some of these things in, in a different way. So hopefully at the end of the day, we're going to call it good news. In his column at BaseballHQ.com uh, that's called The End, he does make a reference to the fact that he sees this as possibly being very freeing for him in his ability to start thinking again about how the game is played, how the game should be played, uh, player issues, and all the kinds of things that really when you're running a business sometimes, I think for him, it was difficult because you know you have to make sure your customers are served. You have to make sure that the computers are working and so forth. And that oftentimes takes away from the opportunity to just sit and think about the game. Yeah. Now, I mean, in full disclosure, you know, we spent some time with Ron in the spring on the first pitch forum. So I may be privy to some of these ideas and have, you know, and not to mention, you know, the, the freedom that he might, you know, feel going forward to be able to actually do some of these things. I mean, you know, she's got Chandler Park going, which is, is still going to be a focus, obviously, in an outlet. But, you know, I, I, I hope and I trust there's going to be some other things, you know, coming out from, uh, from Chandler LLC that's going to, uh, that's going to make it better for all of us. He mentioned in the column he wants to look beyond the Mayberry method. He, he thinks that there might be more going on in there. Uh, he, talked about the first pitch forum spring tour that you just talked about uh, an exercise you guys did called projecting players blind and he thinks that while the exercise was maybe a little simplistic that there are some interesting concepts there right now what the exercise involved was all we knew were some very very basic uh, information about each player we knew that there we knew the rotisserie value and we knew the age and what we had to do was uh, guess what they were going to earn the following season, what would be this season. So all we you know, age, you know, what age bracket are they in? Are they in a growth mode? Are they in a uh, decline mode? Or are they in a steady mode? And what the rotisserie, we didn't, if it was pitcher, we didn't know position, we didn't know if it was a low value, was it because they were called up or injury or, or, or what? So, and, and we found that after we put the names to the dollars, that there were some interesting dichotomies between what actually occurred in in drafting this spring and what we thought we would occur looking blind. So, I mean, I think some of the simplistic aspects were, you know, if I'd known this was an injury, if I'd known this or that, if I'd known it was a pitcher, not a hitter, I might have guessed differently. Uh, but there's definitely some bias, some recency bias and other types of bias that are involved in our thinking, in our player evaluation, and then to our game theory. And I think that's probably what he wants to look at is, okay, let me slowly introduce some of these other points to use in the analysis, and at what point does the bias interject and how much? Yeah, once you take the names away, it certainly changes how you think about a player uh, because you're not thinking about what you know about him or, or especially the biases you have towards him for good or ill. Jose Abreu, you know, one year, things like that. So we, when you hear the name, you know, good, good, good growth player. So, you know, but we, uh, his numbers went down as far as our projected one goes. Uh, so yeah, one, the, the name definitely changes matters, you know, along with, you know, is he injury prone? Is, 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 you know, that sort of thing. So, uh, it's, yeah, I think yeah, there's the, there, you know, there's the mesh. There's, the name is important and the history is important. And the reason why the dollars are what they are, are important. But we do tend to have recency bias. And I think that's, uh, probably the biggest, especially now some more than ever, just because everything is out there. There's no one you haven't heard of. And for most players, you know why they did what they did because analysis goes so deep. So I think there's more possibility for recency bias as well. 
And not just recency bias either. There's reputational bias where you're uh, oftentimes you'll look at a player on your cheat sheet as the draft is raging around you and you think to yourself, well, I know this guy's old and his last couple of years haven't been that great, but maybe he'll get back to what he used to be. I'm confident that this player is going to, you know, recover back to uh, three years ago or, or whatever, maybe not so recent, but just reputational bias also affects a lot of uh, fantasy owners. And not just that, it's the rep, it's, um, because you're playing more team, you're playing more leagues, uh, because the, the, it's easier to play on the internet now. And there's just, with Twitter, there's so many more opinions. So you've got, it's not, it's, it's a reputation of the people that are giving advice as well on these players. So, you know, so and so says something good about this player. Do I trust it? Do I not trust it? I don't want to call it information overload because opposed to, I, some people will say, I think you can have too much information. I don't think you can have too much information. I just think you need to do a better job assimilating all the information you get, uh, knowing where to weed it out. So I'm not going to say there's too much information, but the more information you have, the better organized and structured you better be on, uh, you know, getting separating the wheat from the chafe as far as what's usable, what's actionable, and what's noise. Yeah, well said. Uh, another aspect of Ron's career, uh, which hasn't ended, I hasten to add, but his uh, career at BaseballHQ.com has uh, come to an end. And uh, I know y- you wrote a comment in the uh, area at BaseballHQ.com after his his column, and your comment was I, I thought was really interesting about the role that Ron played in establishing a kind of uh, widespread togetherness or community in an industry that could have gone down a different path. If you don't actually subscribe to HQ, and if you don't, why not? I, I wrote on his Facebook page as well, so if, if you're interested, uh, it's there. Basically, and I've said this uh, for for a few years now because it, it really hits home with me because I'm not sure I'd be on that. Well, I know I wouldn't be on the phone with you if it wasn't for this. Um, pretty much back in the early in, in the early 2000s, when the industry was just about to take off, Ron made a, a point of getting more of the industry to show up at the November first pitch forum in Arizona. And I think it was by design. Uh, like you said, you know, at the time, even at the time, Baseball HQ was the preeminent source. You know, they could have squashed the competition, but I think Ron realized, I don't know that he saw the internet growing the game as much as it did, but I think he did realize for his company to grow the the industry as a whole had to grow and the best way to do that was to have other companies be successful and 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 do some things that hq maybe didn't do the news and and some other stuff so i think he sort of had the prescience to i don't want to say piggyback on this because you know piggyback means you're you're the the follower not the leader but you know lead but also have people you know you can't run up the hill turn around and see no one's there with you you know, when you say charge, you better have the troops with you as well. And he made it such that, you know, people like myself and my company could grow and, and be successful along with HQ. And as, you know, and to me that, that was just, it's a, it's a unique business perspective, but I think it was very necessary. So, you know, like I said, these are, these were not just his, you know, friends. These were his colleagues and his competitors that he was inviting and, and was showing up to these events. And, uh, you know, to this day, you know, I still am a regular on the tour and, you know, I, I, I'm associated with HQ, obviously, but I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm not employed, you know, solely by HQ. And there's a lot of us that, that can say the same thing that, 
um, our careers have been helped along by Ron's openness and the synergy and the symbiotic way that he's approaching these conferences. In addition to growing the actual business, I think, Ron, by doing just what you said, especially gathering people together and allowing them to mingle together and meet each other and, and exchange email addresses and phone numbers and ideas, Ron brought together and gave an opportunity to fantasy owners who liked thinking and writing about the game. Guys like me, frankly, I've been doing this for Ron for uh, the better part of 15 or 18 years now, and beyond that, he encouraged all of this industry-wide exchange of views that has really moved a lot of the theory of the game forward. I can take this back to the first pitch forums. I think the first, you know, I don't say this, the, the, the change that he made in the early 2000s was going from a series of 20 or 30 minute, you know, standalone, a guy getting in front of the podium talking for 30 minutes to having these panel discussions with all of the the members of the industry, not just HQ members, but you know myself and and Jeff Erickson and, and Joe Sheehan and Larry Michaels and you know the, the the gang, everybody, and this, in a, in essence, fostered this exchange of ideas, and made the the panel more interactive with the with the audience. It, you got several different opinions on a player or on a theory or on a trade uh, philosophy, that sort of thing. So I think that. You know, it helped, you know, he brought, you know, the, the, the Ron Chandler tree as far as writers go, like yourself, is extensive. But to give us all an opportunity to go up and speak and, you know, have 15 or 20 different opinions, uh, expert opinions, you know, from the industry at these panels and not, you know, have five or six guys come up. And, and you know, with these spiels were great. I remember Matt Olkin, some of his stuff was fantastic. But I think these... uh you know, these group discussions are great. And real quick before I forget, you know, I, it kind of bums me out when we go to these, uh, the first pitch forums and they're always Ron Chandler's. I just want to give a head nod to our friend Rick Wilton, who's, uh, who's just as involved in, and he, and actually, you know, started him up. And then, you know, Ron, Ron, and then he built it to what it is. But I think sometimes we forget how integral Rick is to the whole process. And uh, Ron in his uh, going away column also said, we need to do more of the think tanking that goes on at the, uh, at the first pitch forum, not only in the, in the uh, presentations or things that you see formally, but especially in Arizona, what goes on after the, uh, you know, when we're sitting out at the ballparks or meeting after the sessions are over at night and just sitting around talking about baseball, a lot of interesting stuff gets done there. And I hope, I'm very confident Ron will stay busy in the field, and I sure hope he does. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. And Todd, at FantasyAlarm.com, where you write regularly, you have a series called Category Impact. And uh, most recently, you had a, an article about how to fix an ERA and whip that are going out of control. What's the, what's the gist of that? Well, the gist of that is my teams have terrible pitching right now. And I'm, I'm practicing what I'm preaching, as it were. Uh, basically... The, uh, you know, I've talked about using relievers for a long time. It's no secret that I, I'm a fan of using the middle reliever, uh, to help. But this year, there just seems to be between injuries to starting pitching and some of the, you know, some of the guys that we thought lower end guys, I hate the word sleepers, but some of the sleepers that we thought would help our teams out aren't doing what we expected. And there's a lot of teams that find themselves in a bind with the ratios now because 
you know, there are teams that are, that aren't, you know, the pitching is still, you know, hitting is a little bit improved over last year, but pitching still overall is, is very, very good. So the hole that you're digging with some of these guys is getting to be pretty big. So what I'm suggesting is as a stopgap, there's always a bunch of, of, of high K, highly skilled relievers available that you could plug in until your guy gets healthy or till your guy turns around or till you can make a trade or the whatnot. So, uh, that, 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 that's the, that was the theme of this column was six or seven guys that are, uh, probably available in most leagues that can st- help stabilize and be a stopgap for your ratios. Give us a couple of examples. Uh, well, the, uh, perhaps my, my favorite is, is Archimedes Caminero of the Pirates. Um, I always like to give a who's he because, you know, a lot of times, you know, you don't want to give Wade Davis because, you know, duh, you know, we, everybody knows Wade Davis. But, uh, Caminero is off to a strong start. He's striking up more than a batter in inning. And one of the reasons I like him, even though I'm a Mark Melanson fan and has seemed to turn it around as far as getting the save lately, he's doing it with less velocity. And I'm there, you know, I'm not, if he was, if he, if he was getting saves and his velocity was back up, I'd be a little more confident, but I'm a little bit nervous about Melanson going forward. And you just don't know. Caminero could be a guy that could be used in, in the, uh, in the late, uh, innings. He's getting the holds now. And if you're getting holds, he's got four holds so far this year. There's a good chance that you'd be called upon next to, uh, to get the saves. So Caminero is a guy that, uh, probably available in almost every league. Uh, Yimmy Garcia, if we had talked a week ago, I mean, he could, he could have been the Caminero that no one had ever heard of, but because he picked up a save or two and is being used in high leverage situations, I think a lot of, you know, if you're following the game, you know Yimmy Garcia at this point. Uh, once Joel Peralta went on the DL, uh, he and Chris Hatcher, who was also mentioned, are in line to pick up a couple saves to, uh, till Kenley Jansen gets back. So he's another guy that I guess in the, in the, in the 10 and 12 team mixed leagues, he still might be available. He's probably gone and 15 and above. A.J. Ramos is a guy who for years is supposed to be the closer of the future, but, you know, Steve Sishek in Miami has, you know, taken the job and run with it. Uh, but he's still a very effective setup guy, also getting some holds. Um, the thing with Ramos, and it's it's a couple of weeks. We don't know if it's going to continue, but he his control, his issue has been control, and he's got the walks under control this year. And if you can keep him that way, uh, he's, you know, he's, he's in the same class as the, as the Davises and whatnot, these high K relievers that can help support your ratios. Well, you met, you mentioned high K and the two Dodgers guys really jumped out at me. Garcia's right around 15 strikeouts per nine and Hatcher's just over 16. Uh, and of course the issue is always walks, but, uh, they both seem to be getting that really working well as well. Right now. I, I mean, it's three weeks. You, you, I can pick three weeks out from, you know, July 27th through August, you know, 8th or whatever it might be last year and find, you know, eight guys that had a, a high K rate for those three weeks. It's just they stick out because it's the first week of the season. So, you know, I'm not expecting these, you know, 15 and 16s canines to persist, but I do think that once they, you know, level, once they level off, they will still be at a very high rate that they can help your team, uh, you know, as far as, you know, getting the strikeouts while stabilizing the, the, uh, the, the ratios, but you know, it is, it's nice. And you know, I'd rather have them at 15 than at five and say, they'll bring it up to 10. You know, I'd rather have them go down from 16 to 10 than saying Hatcher normally has 10 K for nine. He's at five now. And don't worry. He'll get to 10. 
you know, I'd much rather have it 16 and say, yeah, you know, he's going to lose a little bit, but still be good. And it's a, a very few innings as well, which makes a, a handful of strikeouts look more impressive on a rate basis. Uh, something else in that column that you mentioned, though, that struck me as being interesting and a bit paradoxical is when we sign uh, our pitchers at draft, whether through the straight draft or through the auction, we kind of have an annual expectation of them. And really, if we tr- overreact to short-run things by streaming them or pulling them out for certain kinds of starts and stuff, we run the risk of having them sitting on the bench when they just defy that expectation and have a really good game or a really good two games. And h- how do we as players square that circle, and do we tend to overmanage or is there a risk of overmanaging this whole idea of I'm going to put um, Ian Kennedy in but only for home games? This is kind of what I said the word pet peeve of mine but you know you listen to the radio you read people writing and you know should i you know start or bench this particular player and all the time the advice is sure have him on the bench until he throws a couple of good games and then start him again to me it's all contextual you know everything we talk about is contextual but this is all contextual to the replacement level of the of the guy that's using his in his stead and what the the impact that he's supposed to have on your staff in general and, you know, I don't necessarily care what I paid for him because what's, what's done is done. Um, you know, there's certain influences as to why a guy may have gone for more or less in the draft or auctions. To me, that's not the issue. But what I expect from him and, and the importance he is to my team shouldn't change. Uh, and, and, you know, I know with this daily, not the, not the daily DFS game, but leagues with daily moves, they're, you know, should I bench, should I start this guy, should I sit this guy? Um, one reason I don't like those because I think the challenge is projecting for the year and then putting the value for the year and then, you know, being stuck with that good or bad, but that's neither here nor there. The point being, um, if you have an expectation rolled into that expectation is some, is some bad outings. And if he has those bad outings when he's on your roster and you put him on reserve until he has a good outing or two, well, you expected those bad outings. You know, that was factored into what you paid and what you expect. And you're, you're losing some of the good stuff that you expected to get as well. But you know what? You're not getting points for those in your, in your standings. So. Right. Unless it's a player who I wanted to be a streamer to begin with. I picked up a guy planning on spot starting him. If I planned on pretty much using the player, you know, every week, I'm not going to reserve him even if he's off to a cold snap. It's just, again, it's the first three weeks. Cold snaps are much more seen are much more out there because it's all we've seen so far. If the cold snap happens in June, you might not even notice it because it's just rolled into everything else. Um, so I think that, yeah, I think that the advice to sit so-and-so until he shows, uh, you know, until he gets a win or gets the strikeouts back up is a mistake because he's going to do it on your reserve. And you know what? If you don't believe he's going to do it, if you're afraid you're going to get three or four more bad outings, well, then you shouldn't have him in the first place. Either you miss, you miss, uh, evaluated him at the beginning or, you know, something's changed since then. So if you don't, if you're concerned, oh no, I, you know, I don't want to get another stinker on my, on my, on my record. Well, then you probably shouldn't have the guy on your team to begin with. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's a, the correct way of looking at it. And for that reason, when I sit at an auction or I'm in a, a draft of any kind, I'm always looking for guys who are going to have a good result at the end of the year, and my intent is to have them on my roster f- throughout the year. Right. Now, I, I, I think a mistake you know, that, I'm, that I made this year, and I, I'll, I'll cop to it, 
is I was high on TJ House, and I was high on Drew Hutchinson, but maybe not as high as other people. But these other people, you know, I've talked about before, there's certain people I trust, and if they believe in a player, then I, I'm going to as well. Uh, I think I may have made the mistake of just putting a guy like House in my lineup, you know, assuming that I was going to be right. His track res- record isn't such that I don't think he deserved to be put in week one. You know, I think I could have left him on reserve and seen how TJ House performed. Now, you know, I mean, with the problem being if he did what I think he's going to do, it's on my reserve. But he wasn't a guy I planned on, you know, just picking and sticking. I planned on using him in positive uh, situations. So at worst, I may have lost one or two of those positive situations. But I had another guy in there that I trusted instead. So I don't know. I mean, we'll see next spring if I, you know, if I like if I like a guy, I'm probably going to fall into the same trap and use him. But I think I may have been a little too aggressive with someone without a track record at the beginning. Now, True Hutchinson's a little different. Because man, the the upside of Hutchinson is just is just incredible. He can get those twelve strikeouts, seven inning performance against anybody, any time. So it's a little bit different. But he's another guy that's dragging my ratios down this you know this season because I I'm pretty well invested in him. Um, so it just you know did he deserve to be in my lineup from day one? I think he did because I think the expectations of how he's going to influence my staff were such that I needed him. But, um, you know, I think you can put Shane Green into the TJ. He's sort of in between the two. Uh, I think that, and he had great first couple of starts, but now it's, it's not so good now for Shane Green. Uh, so who knows? It w- would have happened was I would have benched his good ones and had him active for the, for the bad stuff. But, um, he's another guy that I, I'm okay if you put Shane Green in your bench because you probably weren't planning on starting him every single week unless it was an AL only league. Yeah, you know what it all reminds me of, Todd, is uh, is the stock market or, or investing in general. And anybody who's been around it for a while or anybody who's thought about it for a while will tell you that you can't time the market. You can't buy into uh, companies, you can't buy shares or shouldn't on the expectation that you're getting in at exactly the right time and that you know every, all systems are go from here on here on out and you the most successful way to invest is to buy and hold and i think the analogy holds in fantasy baseball where you're 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 really playing a mugs game if you have a tj house on your roster and a drew hutchison and you start trying to guess when exactly is the right time to start either one of them uh, i know that there are guys that if depending on your reserve situation you might have a pitcher that you say look I know that this guy can win where he's playing in San Diego or or Seattle or some Miami, some kind of very favorable park. And my intention from day one, as you said, is he's only going to pitch in in home games. If your rules allow it and if you can get enough innings and have different guys that you can stream in otherwise because of your reserve. But in general, I think it's a mugs game. Yeah, now, it it may be talking semantics here, but... I'm not so much trying to time the market with Hutchinson and and House. It's more of judging whether my estimation of their of, of their expectation was was correct or not. Maybe I was wrong about the player. So it's almost as if giving me another chance, maybe a little longer, to evaluate whether I was right at the beginning of the season or wrong at the beginning of the season of what of the of what the expectations were for these players because they had limited track records. I mean. You do sometimes, especially in today's day and age, 
have to make knee-jerk reactions to shorter samples uh, and, and hope that you're right, as opposed to waiting for the two- or three-year uh, solid baseline of, of performance, just because rules nowadays let, you know, lead, lend themselves to taking more risks, and someone's going to take a risk and it's going to pay off, whether it was because, you know, whether they knew it was, you know, not so much new, but whether it was luck or, or calculated risk, who knows, it, it, it happened. Uh, so I think sometimes you have to loosen the reins a bit. So, you know, to me, it's more of is, is Green, is Hutchinson, is, is House, as, as the name of three, are they really the pitcher I thought they were, or was I wrong? And if I'm wrong, it's time to cut bait. You know, is two more starts really gonna definitively give me the answer? Probably not. But like I said, in this, in this, the way this game is, especially, I, you know, I play the high stakes in the high stakes game. I think you do have to make those decisions a little bit more, uh, you know, loosen up, lo- let down your hair a little bit more than, than in the olden days. Yeah, I wasn't saying that you were timing the market. I understand that what you were saying is is something different, but there are plenty of guys out there who do try to time the market, especially if they have daily transactions, even in a full season league, at which point the, the game starts to look an awful lot like the daily fantasy baseball where you have seven or eight pitchers to choose from and you pick and choose which guy's going to be in the lineup that night and it's all based on various market timing type of mechanisms. Uh, You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. And Todd, speaking of daily fantasy, um, you uh, had a fairly... uh, I don't know what you want to call it, a rant, for want of a better term. You described yourself as being on tilt about this whole issue, especially in daily fantasy, about how or even if to use batter versus pitcher data. This is an interesting, you know, hot-button topic with me because my rant wasn't so much on the use or non-use of batter versus pitcher BVP, but it wasn't, you know, I call it, it wasn't on the stance, it was on the process that sides on people on both sides of the issue defend their stance. That's kind of what got me a little. That that sort of had had set me off. Uh, was the, the reason I wrote the article, and you know, still feel that way. Um, you know, for those that are unaware, uh, batter versus pitcher is using the the history of the batter versus a certain pitcher, and this can be used in traditional fantasy as well uh, to use him that night if he's got a strong record of success against a particular pitcher. Uh, intuitively, it makes sense. You know, we've all played the game at, at some level and, and think we, you know, felt better against certain pitchers. So intuitively, you know, it makes sense that if a guy is just really good against a certain pitcher, he owns that guy, he sees the ball better, he just feels more comfortable. Uh, sure. It's not borne out in the numbers. Uh, now, my problem is that the numbers suggest that it's non-predictive the numbers do not say that X player does not fare better against X pitcher. What it says is you cannot, if there's a subset of people that are fare better, you can't definitively identify this guy does, this guy does, as opposed to it was just, you know, just dumb luck that the numbers happen to be better. So it's not so much it doesn't exist or you can't use it or it's wrong. It's, it's non-predictive. So people that don't, use BPV, what they do is they come out and they say, you know, it's it's wrong, it doesn't exist, and it opens himself up for the other side that use it, and they're, you know, they're using a straw man's argument against them as far as, you know, all you do is look at the numbers, this, that, the other thing, and instead of actually pulling the efforts and trying to figure out 
is there a way to figure out which guys are better or worse versus particular pitchers? It's become kind of a Pee Wee Herman discussion amongst both sides. And to me, it's just, it's frustrating as a guy who wants to know the, I don't, I don't care what the answer is. I have no skins, you know, which I don't care the answer. And the only reason I care about the answer is I want to use what's right. I don't want BPV to be right or wrong either way. I want to know what's right. A, cause, you know, it can get me more money if I win. And B, cause as my, the job as an analyst would I care more about than, than winning a little bit money, I want to be giving out the best, the best advice. So if there really is an angle that's better or worse than the other, I want to know it and I want to be preaching it. But I don't know that we know it right now. So, uh, it's, it's kind of frustrating that instead of, you know, working together, to determine the answer, both sides think they know, neither side really does know, and they're each trying to convince each other that they're right when neither of them is right, because we don't know who's right right now. And the the side that says it doesn't exist often relies on a very famous uh, sabermetric book called The Book by uh, Tom Tango, Mitchell Lichman, and Andrew Dolphin. It was, came out seven or eight years ago. And you argue that the people who say that that chapter is absolutely declarative that there's no such thing as a batter versus pitcher data that work for the way we want them to work are misreading the chapter or maybe haven't read it at all. The manner in which you present your argument, I think, you know, if I'm listening to the radio, if I'm reading someone defending it, I can tell whether, the, I, I think I can tell. Here, Here's me being the, you know, the definitive elitist about it. I think I can tell whether they, you know, what they know what they're talking about by having read the book and formed their own opinion, or if they're just sort of piggybacking upon someone who's stating an opinion and, and, and therefore it must be right sort of thing. Um, now, I, I've got some issues with the study itself. The the study occurred or, or was based on data from 99 through 2001, and then the, the how did they do season was 2002. To me, this is a long time ago. It's, uh, you know, 14, 15 years ago. Things are different now with uh, with film study and video and and different ways of uh, looking at pictures and breaking down data. To me, it's a different time, and I, and either the, the the study has to be redone to see if the same results exist, or you know, or actually, I'm not even so sure that, or, or just the study itself has to be changed to get some better to get some better numbers. Now, part of why I believe that it doesn't exist or at least it's non-predictive here here's me so it doesn't exist it's non-predictive is that vince Gennaro, the president of saber has dedicated his research time to finding a better means to use batter versus pitcher and we actually he, he actually presented this at a first pitch forum in november a couple of years ago so if the president of saber is unsure that it's predictive you know i i therefore believe that and uh again i don't know you know which I do believe it. I do believe there are batters that are better. I don't know if we can figure him out though. He's got a way of, of of hopefully down the line, helping us decide if a batter versus pitcher might be real by grouping together pitchers of similar profile. They throw similar pitches. They throw similar uh, speed of pitches and break on pitches. And so maybe it's not that Paul Goldschmidt owns Timmy Linscombe. It might be that Paul Goldschmidt fares very well about up against pitchers of Timmy Linscombe's ilk, and when Linscombe pitches, therefore you could say that he's got a good chance of success. Uh, so hopefully that data will 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 reveal a little bit more information down the line. But until then, it's not so much that you know that be, I prefer to use analysis methods which I can tangibly uh, back up 
and I can't back up using BVP. I can't back up not using it. So what I've elected to do is not incorporate it in my analysis, uh, at, at least at this time. And, um, you know, for those that do, I'm not the one that's making fun of them or saying they're wrong. I, you know, I just, you know, I wish them luck and let's, let's play in a league and see what happens. So the, the issue isn't that a BVP batter versus pitcher is right or wrong. The, the question is whether it's predictive. That is the fact that we know that Paul Goldschmidt has had a certain level of, uh, outsized success against Tim Lincecum doesn't mean he's going to go three for four tonight against Tim Lincecum. And with all of these other batter versus pitcher matchups for, for in favor of the pitcher or in favor of the batter don't necessarily haven't been shown to be able to make that prediction. Is that just because it's an issue of sample size? Yeah, that's, that's the, the, the two primary uh, defenses of the BPV for those that you know, say that it, it, it's not predictive. It's, excuse me, A, sample size, and B, even if the sample's, well, the, he's got 50 or 60 plate appearances versus said pitcher. Well, to have that many, he's probably been f- facing that pitcher for five, six, seven years. And it's it's a different hitter and a different pitcher. So whether or not, it, it, that at least, you know, right now, Paul Goldschmidt facing Timmy Linscombe, well, Linscombe's not near the pitcher that he was years ago. So if Goldschmidt gets a homer, is it because he owns them or because Linscombe's just not that good anymore? Uh, so, you know, the, so it's the combination of sample and if the sample's large enough, the, uh, the recency, the validity of the sample, because it, are they really the same players that they are back then that you're trying to compare? So that's what this study by my Mr. Mr. Gennaro is hoping to do is by grouping together pitchers, you're using more recent data and more of it. Uh, so that, that's sort of what, you know, the idea of that particular study, but it's not so much whether Goldschmidt will, you know, you know, any given night, he can go 0 for 4, et cetera. It's, you know, is he a smart play that night because he owns Tim Linscomb? Uh, there was a, a case this week with Aris, Aramis Ramirez against Johnny Cueto. He own he has a very good history against Johnny Cueto. You know, it's these bizarre ones that, that are, that are weird, like the, you know, the, a right-handed batter against a very, very, very good right-handed pitcher in Cueto. Um, you know, so then, you know, let's you kind of scratch your head. Why does Ramirez have such success? And what does he do? He goes out and hits a home run this week. So I kind of jokingly said, you know, Aris Ramirez, you're not helping. Um, you know, cause a lot of these batter versus pitcher, uh, looks like they're strong. It's because you've got a, a good hitter versus a mediocre pitcher of the opposite handedness. And it's going to meet my criteria of a good matchup before we even get to BB, BVP. There's only a handful of these, you know, same handedness against a very good pitcher that, you know, that, that, that sort of are, are counted on as far as, well, you know, he, he Ramirez has to own Cueto. I mean, he's such a good pitcher. It has to be because he owns him. Yeah, I think that the uh, the choice of terms sometimes gets in the way of understanding as well. Things like he owns him. Uh, terminology matters. I think if if everybody could switch the argument, as you say, from it's real, it's not real, to it's predictive, it's somewhat predictive, it's not predictive, I think then the, all of a sudden the the anger goes out of the debate between the two sides and everybody realizes what we're talking about is a matter of degree rather than a matter of right versus wrong, black versus white. Uh, You know, you mentioned that uh, some players seem to just have 
inexplicably good performance against uh, other players. And there's a guy, and now I can't remember his name, who's had tremendous success in his career over Clayton Kershaw, and and he's not a good hitter. You know, he's not the kind of guy you'd expect would be able to dominate Clayton Kershaw. But it happens, and I guess the question is, uh, how is there a way to quantify it, to capture it, to predict it, and to apply it? Right now, and I won't go into too many details about this because it's, it's getting a little mathy, and you know, mathy is hard to do in a podcast. But if it's non-predictive, what it basically means is that it's kind of fifty-fifty. The results are a coin flip. Now, to me, if the results are a coin flip, and if batter versus pitcher really, 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 truly exists in some instances, then if you were to figure out you know, the expectations, you've got some that are a coin flip, and some that are positive. The results should therefore be, as a group, a little bit positive, but the results are showing back to being just a coin flip, which means there has to be some people on the other side pulling that weighted average down, which means there has to be some guys that had a previous success against a pitcher that are now not having success, and this not having success is real. It's not a coin flip. And, you know, if you want to have the, the, if you want to make the narrative that Certain guys see the ball better and catch up the spin better and just more comfortable. I'll make the narrative that in today's day and age of video, there's some pitchers that are PO'd that this guy owns them, and they're going and they're looking at video, and they're looking at this guy, and they're figuring out how to get this guy out. So the pitcher is now being proactive about it. And to me, there's probably a, a subset of players that look like they, they have an advantage over that pitcher, but because that pitcher doesn't want to have that continue. He's going in there and he's doing something about it. So, you know, I, I, you know, that's a narrative I haven't heard, but I'll, I'll bet it exists out there. I'm very curious to see what Gennaro comes up with insofar as uh, figuring out the, the predictive nature of this question. And uh, I'd be very curious if there is any kind of predictive level. How many plate appearances does it take? We know that there are various levels of activity that stabilize more quickly than others, and it would be very interesting to find out if you could actually make some kind of predictive uh, use out of the data based on 100 plate appearances, 75 plate appearances. Who the hell knows? Right, and, you know, we're not the only ones. I mean, you, you already hear, you know, so-and-so is playing today because he's, you know, five for nine against this particular pitcher. So, you know, major leagues want to know this as well. Now, they're, you know, old school. They're using it. They probably, you know, they've never heard of, you know, Vince Gennaro and, and any of this stuff, but they're just old school and they figure there's a reason why the guy's five or nine and I'm going to sit my bench, bench my regular and play this, this reserve player because, you know, three years ago he had a three for three day against this guy and it inflated yeah. the numbers. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and the announcers, you know, what do you hear? The announcers, the, uh, the color men, all they do is they spout out the, uh, the batter versus pitcher data because, you know, people think that in this day and age of numbers that all numbers are good and they think that they're smart. So these announcers are out spouting these numbers because they're easily accessible and they're, you know, they can make sense to the listener, but sometimes they're, uh, they're misleading. Oftentimes I'd, I'd hasten to say, uh, I believe that a lot of that kind of data when it's presented by the guy in the booth, the color commentator has been collected and presented by somebody else and they are presented 
uh, collected and presented by way of being curiosities. I don't think they, they really are intended to be presented as analytical or predictive, but the guy in the booth who wants to sound smart and erudite and show that he's, you know, with it in terms of uh, these analytic methods just says, as you said, uh, this guy's five for nine uh, in his appearances over his career and imbues it with that kind of, so obviously he, he has some kind of success or some kind of ability here that that justifies perhaps doing something they wouldn't normally do. Yeah, what is it that David Letterman used to say is, uh, this is for entertainment purposes only, please, no wagering. You know, so it's, uh, it's not quite the same, but I think it's that, uh, it's that thought process. You know, it's, it's entertainment. It's not, you know, but unfortunately, you know, major league managers and, you know, fantasy players, uh, use this as, as a, as a means of analysis. And, you know, it, it's weird. I, I'm not saying it's wrong, but yet I'm not using it. Maybe that's contradictory. I don't know. But, um, like I said, I, I'm using things that I can at least justify, you know, via, numbers you know that that show that there's an edge to be gained and that's really all you can do if you if you look at any kind of uh, analysis real or putative and uh, find it wanting then you just have to ignore it until somebody comes along and proves that it actually does work todd it, it's always really interesting to talk with you i appreciate it we'll catch up with you again in uh, a week's time looking forward to it already patrick all right todd zola writes for baseballhq.com for Ron Chandler, ChandlerPark.com, for ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, and Masters Ball. And as I say every week, wherever Todd Zola is writing, you should be reading. When we come back, our Baseball HQ commentaries. It's the Pitcher Matchup Reports and Master Notes, next on Baseball HQ Radio. And this crowd just training board at every pitch. Here it comes. A swing of this. Two strikes, ball one to Dale Mitchell. Listen to this crowd. I'm guaranteed that nobody, but nobody has left this ballpark. And if somebody did manage to leave early, man, he's missing the greatest. Two strikes and a ball. Mitchell waiting, stands deep, feet close together. Larson is ready, gets the sign. Two strikes, ball one, here comes the pitch, strike three! A no-hitter, a perfect game for John Larson! Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we'll have Ray Murphy and Master Notes. And to start, it's our Pitcher Matchup Report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup based on his opponent, the park, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. We recommend pitchers with matchup ratings of plus two and higher, while we suggest you avoid pitchers with matchup ratings below zero. Here with this weekend's matchups is BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. Since it's May Day, let's check in on some teams that are sending distress signals. On Saturday in the American League, Toronto rookie right-hander Aaron Sanchez is saddled with a matchup rating of minus 167. What's more, he faces last year's American League Cy Young Award winner, Corey Kluber at pitcher-friendly Progressive Field in Cleveland. Kluber's matchup rating is only 150, but don't be bothered by his 0-3 start this season. All five of his outings have been PQS dominant. In 34 innings, he struck out 36. 
His expected ERA of 282 is nearly identical to his Cy Young year expected ERA of 274. His command ratio of 5.1 strikeouts per walk mirrors last year's 5.3, and his base performance value of 149 is right in line with last season's BPV of 158. The Indians are off to a poor start this year, including a losing record at home, but for them, it's Corey Kluber to the rescue, at least this Saturday. Meanwhile, Aaron Sanchez shows the unpredictability of a rookie. He has one PQS dominant start, one PQS disaster, and two in between. Sanchez has tremendous stuff, but he has yet to harness it. In 20 innings as a starter this year, Sanchez has 16 strikeouts and 14 walks. He fared better for the Blue Jays in 33 innings as a reliever last year, fanning 27 and walking only 9. The transition to Major League starter is not likely to be smooth sailing for Sanchez, so stay away from him when you can for now. There are nine matchup ratings above three this weekend, and in the National League on Saturday, Jake Arrieta of the Cubs owns one of them. He's at home with a matchup rating of 313 against Mike Fires of the Brewers and his matchup rating of 190. Fires has two straight PQS disaster zeros, and last week we said of him, once burned, twice shy. The Brewers have the worst record and the worst run differential in the majors. They allow the most runs per game at 5.4 and score the third fewest at 3.2. Arietta should fly high in this one, and the Brewers should send out a mayday distress signal. Moving back to the American League for Sunday, five pitchers have negative matchup ratings. One of the two worst belongs to the Yankees' Adam Warren, who goes into Boston with a matchup rating of minus 2-0. After some fine work in the Bronx Bombers' bullpen last season, Warren is making his fifth start this year. His PQS log thus far is 2-0-2-4. In 21 innings, he has struck out only 12 and walked 8. The Red Sox counter with Joe Kelly and his matchup rating of 221. In 24 innings this season, Kelly has K'd 28 and walked 8. He's had some bad luck with his strand rate of only 57%, so his ERA of 494 is much inflated over his expected ERA of 308. Stay away from Warren and keep Kelly in this one. On Sunday in the National League, it would be a family feud when Chase Anderson of Arizona visits Brett Anderson of the Dodgers in L.A. if they were related. The two have already met once this season, both allowing three earned runs and neither involved in the decision. Though the Dodgers' home record is second only to the Mets, it's Chase Anderson who has the better matchup rating of 090. He followed his PQS 4 against L.A. with PQS scores of 4, 5, and 3. In 23 innings, he has 20 strikeouts and only 6 walks. Brett Anderson followed his PQS 5 against the D-backs with PQS scores of 3, 0, and 0, earning him a matchup rating of minus 050. In 20 innings, he struck out only 11 and walked 4. Without Ryu and McCarthy, the Dodgers have started Scott Baker twice. If that isn't a distress signal, we don't know what is. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. And with a look at a May Day health check on his NFBC team, here's BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. Ron Chandler has long said that May 15th is the date that early season stats become real. Individual player stats become legitimate at different rates, of course. 
But in terms of overall fantasy team performance, May 15th is the line where what your team has done in aggregate has to be taken seriously. Of course, May 15th is still two weeks away. It's only May 1st, and with the late start to the 2015 season, we aren't even four full weeks in yet. So, while I like to take a team health check on May Day, the conclusions reached are going to be rather tenuous. For my subject team, let's look at my NFBC main event entry. I have a few other teams that I've written about here this spring, from Tout Wars and Labor, but my sense is that this NFBC team is particularly interesting. First, some background on our draft. This is a 15-team mixed league, 5x5 scoring, batting average down on base percentage. The draft approach was to go very heavy on hitting early. My co-manager, Wynn Murray, manages our pitching staff, and he's very comfortable managing that staff from the waiver wire throughout the year. So we wanted to load up on offense early. Sort of a classic Lima approach. We followed that approach even more forcefully than I expected to entering the draft. Of our first eight picks, seven were hitters and the eighth was a closer. Our first starting pitcher taken was Masahiro Tanaka in round nine. Yeah. Oof. Based on that description alone, you would think that this team would start out hot on offense and struggle with pitching early as we churn the waiver wire in search of this year's Jake DeGrom. Well, you'd be wrong. The pitching staff is leading the league in ERA and whip, is second in strikeouts, and mid-pack in wins. Saves are a problem, as we lost a closer in Joaquin Benoit, and our two remaining closers, David Robertson and Addison Reed, have combined for four saves. With that kind of success from a low-cost pitching staff, this team should be rolling overall. But that heavy investment in early hitters has not paid off. When you look at the names of some of those seven players, you start to understand why. Adam Jones was a worthy first-round pick so far. Edwin Encarnacion has four home runs, but is hitting 190. Jose Reyes has not been productive, and now he's on the DL. Carlos Gonzalez has been healthy, but disappointing. Two home runs and a 200 batting average. Anthony Rendon hasn't even played yet. Devin Mazzarocco is injured, but hasn't been DL'd. He's two for 22 on the season. Jason Hayward is healthy, but disappointing. Two home runs and a 228 batting average. Of those seven early picks, only one, first-rounder Adam Jones, is meeting expectations. Well, to be fair, we didn't really expect to have Rendon for April, so I guess he has met expectations too. But the net result is only 13.5 out of a possible 75 hitting points, a result far out of line with our investment in hitting. Even if I take the leap of faith that our duct tape and bailing wire pitching staff can hold up all season, we're going to need this offense to turn around. So, let's pull apart the offense and see how much our draft day expectations should be changed based on this poor start. To do this, we'll utilize the Mac engine at Baseball HQ to isolate the lineup's current skills and compare them to rest of season projections. This is my favorite feature of the Mac tool, the ability to spit out team-wide BPIs. It's not unexpected that the projected balances show team-wide improvement. Our projections engine is set up to not put too much stock in early season sample sizes, so this result is somewhat baked into the exercise. Still, to see things like a 22-point gap between our current April batting average and our expected batting average for April, and a full 100 points of projected OPS improvement over the balance of the season from what they've done so far, even without adding any additional reinforcements to the roster, that's all very reassuring. Still, some of the problems are real. 
The stolen base situation is dire, driven by the Reyes injury, the Carl, Carl Crawford injury, and the lack of contribution from endgamer Emilio Bonifacio, who has since been cut. And we covered the same situation above. That will need to be addressed with reinforcements. Realistically, to compete for the league title, this team will need the offense to snap back in line with its projected performance, and it will need a good solution to either the saves or stolen base problem. That's the type of information I wanted from this exercise. For a team that's littered with problems right now, to the point where you almost don't know where to start, to figure out which ones are more likely to be solved on their own, and which ones I actively need to manage around for the balance of the season. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager and speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com and a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 1st. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 22 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular guest on this Friday edition of the show, Todd Zola, as always a lot of fun to talk to and a source of a lot of information and insight. I also want to thank our contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our Pitcher Matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. And our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, you can check out BaseballHQ on Facebook and our Twitter feed at BaseballHQ. You can subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, and you'll be the first to know when a new show comes up. More importantly, though, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8-star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday when our expert guest will be Jason Collette from Rotowire, Fangraphs, and Baseball Prospectus. That's the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.